Well, it was 2002, and it was the summer before my senior year of high school when I got this shocking phone call. You see, at that time, I was living in Columbia, South Carolina. That was my hometown and really the only city I had ever known. And in just a few months before, in February of 2002, my mother had married my new stepfather. And while I was so happy for her, this quickly presented a problem. You see, shortly after they were married, my stepfather's work was bringing him seven hours north of Columbia, South Carolina to Manassas, Virginia. It probably goes without saying, but the prospect of leaving the only town I had ever known, the senior before my, uh, the year before my senior year of high school, rather, it was pretty repugnant to me. I mean, after all, all of my friends were in Columbia. I was playing in bands that were in Columbia. I knew all the best coffee shops and skate spots in Columbia, not to mention the attachment I had to this beautiful brunette that I was dating at the time. Well, my mother is typically a very tenacious person and could have easily strong-armed this move. I am forever grateful that she sympathized with my plight. You see, to my amazement, after some back and forth, my mother, get this, she actually agreed to allow me to stay back in Columbia and finish my senior year of high school on my own. Now, she did have some conditions. I had to live with my older sister, and her job was to keep an eye out on me, and I had to successfully keep moving through my senior year of high school academically. But beyond that, my mother and stepfather would just provide for my daily needs from afar from Virginia, and so that was the plan. That is what I was going to do with my senior year of high school. Well, before my senior year of high school could begin, my father, who was paying child support at the time, he appealed to the court, understandably questioning whether he should be obligated to continue paying child support in light of the new living arrangement and these new dynamics. Well, that led to my phone call, and Basically, in light of all the moving parts and factors and the new dynamics involved, the judge made a decision. He decreed that as far as the state of South Carolina is concerned, I, Matthew Saxon, was no longer a child, was no longer a minor. I was, in fact, legally an adult, and I was legally emancipated. Because of the authority that this judge possessed, the limitations and restrictions that accompanied childhood had now been severed in my life, and I was now free to decide what to do with myself. In case you're wondering what I did with my newfound freedom, I started college a year early, and a few years later, I married that beautiful brunette. So needless to say, I'm very grateful with how that worked out. But I can still remember to this day just the excitement and the buzz and the euphoria I felt as I hung up that phone, realizing this exciting new power, freedom, and autonomy that came with being liberated. I wonder if you've ever experienced that. Have you ever felt just the excitement and joy and euphoria that accompanies some newfound freedom in your life? 
Perhaps you finally paid off those student loans that have been hanging over your head for years now, and you are just rejoicing in this new financial freedom that you're experiencing. Hey, maybe you got a new boss at work that isn't such a jerk, and you are rejoicing in this new freedom that you have been liberated from that old supervisor, or perhaps maybe you're a little further along in life and you're recently retired and you're just basking in the glow of having the freedom over your calendar in time. Whatever freedom might look like in your life, I'm sure we can all agree that freedom is a beautiful thing. And this morning, that's really what we're going to be talking about as we continue our study through the book of Colossians. We're going to be exploring freedom, and we're going to do that in Colossians chapter 2. I invite you to turn there if you haven't done so already. But basically, this morning, in a nutshell, here is what we're going to see. We're going to see that ultimately, Christ is the one who liberates us not from some financial burden or a jerky boss. No, Christ has liberated us from something much more insidious. So this morning, I want to invite you to hop over to Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, and there we're going to see that Christ is the one who has liberated us from our sinful impulses. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 reads the following. In him, that is in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision not performed by human hands. Rather, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Now I get it. Circumcision is a bit of an embarrassing topic. It kind of makes you squirm in your chair a little bit. Let's just acknowledge the obvious and say it's a bit of an off-putting topic. It's not fun or pleasant to talk about circumcision, but the Apostle Paul here in our passage is doing something absolutely brilliant. You see, the Apostle Paul is using circumcision to help illustrate a profound reality. You see, in the Old Testament, under the law of Moses, in the Old Covenant, all Jewish males were commanded to be circumcised. And so, if you were a Jewish baby boy born into Israel, what would happen is on the eighth day of your life, you would be circumcised. And this circumcision would serve as a sign, as a reminder, as a symbol that that little boy was in a covenantal relationship with the God of Israel. Simply put, circumcision involves a radical removal and reordering of one's physical condition. And what Paul shows us in verse 11 here is that if you are in Christ, if you are forgiven of your sins, if you're on your way to heaven, then we too have experienced a radical reordering, not of our physical condition, but of our spiritual condition that we are born into. Paul uh, alludes to that spiritual condition we're all born into in verse 11. He describes it as one where we have this disposition and state of being ruled by the flesh. In other words, in scripture, it is clear that each and every one of us is born into this natural, default, universal condition where we are mastered by our own selfishness and we are mastered by our own sinful 
impulses. In Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 7, that state that we're all born into is described in the following way. It says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. Now catch this, the mind governed by the flesh, that is the state we're all born into, enslaved to our sinful impulses, the mindset described there is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. In other words, all of us are born with this spiritual condition where we're in hostility with God, and we do not rise above our sinful impulses by and large. And in fact, it's not only that we don't, we can't. There is an inability to do so. In Titus chapter 3, verse 3, Paul speaking of his life and the life of other believers before coming to Christ, he describes this lifestyle we're all born into, this default universal way of living as being akin to slavery. Titus chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, and slaves to various passions and pleasures. Bottom line, according to scripture, all of us are born with this natural default spiritual condition of not only not rising above our sinful impulses by and large, but having an inability to do so. According to scripture, we're all born enslaved to different passions and pleasures. And while that is slavery is mankind's natural spiritual condition, according to our text in Colossians 2, verse 11, Paul is so bold as to say, well, that is the natural default condition we're all born into. If you are actually in Christ, if you're actually forgiven of your sins, if you're actually on your way to heaven, there has been a game changer when it relates to that spiritual condition. Verse 11, that spiritual condition that we're all born into, according to the text, it says it was put off. That spiritual state where we can't help but obey our selfish and sinful impulses, according to scripture, has been removed, dethroned, overcome, put aside by the death of Christ, and it has been dealt a death blow. The coercive power of our sinful impulses has actually been severed and overcome, and there's been a radical reordering of the authority of our sinful impulses if we are in Christ. Let's continue in verses 12 and 13 as Paul continues to develop this concept. He says, having been buried with him, that is with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ and he forgave all our sins. I want you to notice in verse 12 that it says, just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too, if we're in Christ, have been raised. Similarly, in verse 13, it says that we were dead in our sins, but God, quote, made us alive together with Christ. What is Paul talking about here exactly? What is he driving at? 
How is it that Paul can say we have been in the past tense made alive? Isn't the resurrection still to come when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to this earth? In what way can it be said that we who are in Christ have had a resurrection of sorts and have been raised and given new life. Well, a good general rule of thumb is that when you're reading through the Bible, if you come to a difficult passage, one of the absolute best things you can do is to go to another portion of scripture that's more clear that will throw some light on the passage that you're having difficulty with. In other words, it's a good rule of thumb to let scripture interpret scripture and to let Paul interpret Paul. We never want to interpret the less Clear, or the more clear verses in light of the less clear verses. Rather, we want to interpret the less clear verses in light of the more clear verses. And that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. When we explore this idea of being made alive in Christ, we're going to see this idea developed, I think, a bit more clearly and digestibly in another book written by the Apostle Paul over in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. So let's hop on over to Romans 8, verses 9 through 11, and let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let's let Paul interpret Paul, and let's explore this idea of what on earth Paul is getting at when he says, all of us who are in Christ have been raised. Romans 8, beginning in verse 9. Speaking of all of those of us who are in Christ, who are on our way to heaven, It says, we, get this, are not controlled by our sinful nature. Rather, we are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And then he wants to make sure he's not misunderstood with his parenthetical comment. He says, and remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. So let's just hit the pause button for a moment there. Paul begins his argument here in Romans 8 by saying, here's what I want to establish first of all. You need to get this. Everyone that is on their way to heaven, that is truly forgiven of their sins, that has been saved by the work of Christ on the cross, all of those people have the Holy Spirit living in them. And he makes it even clearer. He says, don't Forget this. There is no such thing as someone who is on their way to heaven who does not also possess the Holy Spirit in them. He says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, you do not belong to Christ. So he starts out with this argument by saying, here's what I want you to understand first of all. This is so crucial. Every genuine follower of Jesus has the Holy Spirit living in them. He continues his argument by saying that spirit that we have in us, it gives us life. The spirit gives us power, gives us energy. The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he will also give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. Now, it's pretty common nowadays when people teach on the Holy Spirit to say the Holy Spirit is a person, and that is true. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity. But what Paul is doing here is he's not so much emphasizing the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Rather, he is emphasizing the power of the Holy Spirit. When you hear Holy Spirit, 
What's closely associated with that in our minds, or at least what should be closely associated, is that the Holy Spirit is associated with the power of God working in the world. And here's Paul's argument in a nutshell. Every genuine Christian, every person who is on their way to heaven has the Holy Spirit in them, that all-powerful Holy Spirit. And if that Holy Spirit was powerful enough to raise Christ's physical body from the dead, then he is certainly powerful enough and strong enough to raise us spiritually right now so that we can live above our sinful impulses and actually experience victory when it comes to those impulses. You see, when Christ was taken down from the cross, he was put in a physical tomb. His body was dead, unresponsive. It had no power, no vitality, no life whatsoever. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was raised and given new life and power and freedom. And he was liberated from the power of death physically. Well, folks, the same thing is true of us if we are in Christ. Apart from Christ's work, we were in a spiritual tomb. In our moral bankruptcy, we were unable to resist the dominating power of our sinful impulses in our lives. We were in a spiritual tomb, lacking life, not being responsive, not having any powers or abilities, but that same Holy Spirit that was powerful enough to raise Christ's physical body from the dead also indwells us, and therefore we can be sure that we're sure that we're sure that it's powerful enough to help us live victoriously over our sinful impulses. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm someone that gets really curious when I hear a new word or new phrase. Is that anybody else? When you hear a new word or new phrase, you kind of just want to know what it means. It doesn't really matter if it's text lingo I learned from my daughters or if it's a word in some academic book that I'm reading. When I come across a new term, I'm curious, what does that mean? And I heard a phrase just the other day that I'm curious if you have heard. I heard a phrase for the very first time, and here's the phrase. Raise your hands if you happen to know what this phrase means. The phrase I heard for the first time was range anxiety. Range anxiety. Any hands here? We had two or three in the nine o'clock. I'm seeing none. You're going to learn something today, folks. We're going to teach you a new term. It's range anxiety. Here's the definition of range anxiety. It is worry on the part of a person driving an electric car that the battery is going to run out of juice before they get to their destination or get to a place where they can charge it. And I'm told many people experience this if they own an electric car. And while we may chuckle at that, if you're like me and you drive a car that's not electric, that may seem kind of funny, but it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if you drive a car that's running on gas, there's like a Stewart's every five feet in upstate New York, you're going to be fine. But if you drive an electric car, there's not that many charging stations. And so I'm told this is a pretty common experience. If you drive an electric car, if you're kind of going somewhere outside of your normal routine, maybe you're going on a little day trip, you start to get range anxiety. I don't know if I got enough juice to make it to the destination. Well, the Apostle Paul wants to make sure when it comes to getting to the destination 
of living above our sinful impulses and experiencing victory over those sinful impulses. He wants us to not have a shred of range anxiety. The Holy Spirit's got plenty of power, plenty of life, plenty of juice to get us where we need to go. Paul says this is an argument from a greater to a lesser. If the Holy Spirit is powerful enough to raise Christ's physical body from the dead, then certainly he can help us grow in having victory over those sinful impulses. Colossians chapter 2, Romans 8, and other passages in Scripture teach that if we are in Christ, we definitely have the Holy Spirit, and if we have the Holy Spirit, we have the power source needed to actually make monumental progress in living the victorious Christian life, living in victory over our sinful impulses, or as Pastor Rex often says it, closing the gap. Do you remember a month ago when Pastor Rex preached that awesome sermon and he said that all of God's children have got a gap? We have a gap between what we profess to believe and how we actually live our lives. We have a gap between the holiness that God has called us to and how we actually live our lives. And Pastor Rex gave that encouraging message where he said that while that gap exists, dependent upon the Holy Spirit, we can actually make monumental progress in closing those gaps. But friends, I have a question for you this morning. If this is all true, if it's God's will that we grow to be more like Jesus, if God has given us the all-powerful Holy Spirit to help us close that gap, if those facts are true, then why do so many of us make so little progress when it comes to closing the gap? Why do so many of us fail to make much of a dent when it comes to closing the materialism gap or the lust gap or the temper gap or the substance abuse gap? Why do so many of us fail to close the gap? if God has given us the power to have victory, and if that's his will for our lives. You might say, well, maybe we don't close the gap because some of us aren't trying. Fair enough. That is the case some of the time. There are those people that aren't making any progress, and the real bottom line for that is they're not lifting a finger. They're not trying. They kind of want to get their get-out-of-hell-free card stamped and just live their life however they want. But can I just be honest with you and say, for many of us, I suspect, that are here today and that are connecting with us online, I believe there are people here that have been following Christ for years, if not decades, who earnestly and genuinely want to close that gap, and they've put effort in over a pretty significant period of time, but they're just not seeing much progress. I think we have a lot of men and women like that in our church, and that can be frustrating. Have you ever been there? Trying for years to have victory over that one pet sin that you just can't seem to really shake, and it's not for lack of effort, it's not that you aren't trying, you just feel kind of frustrated, 
and stuck. Well, when things aren't working well in life, one of the best things you can do is do some troubleshooting. And that's really what we're going to do for the remainder of our time. We want to turn our attention very practically to the matter of why is it we have such difficulty closing the gap. And we're going to do that by looking at four reasons we tend to have a difficult time closing the gap. Four reasons why we tend to have a difficult time closing the gap. Reason number one we experience difficulty with closing the gap is we're walking by sight, not by faith. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says that we should be walking by faith, that is trusting in God, rather than sight, that is our own intuition, cynicism, and observation. We're supposed to be people that walk by faith, not by sight. In the book of Proverbs, a similar idea is communicated where it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and mind and do not lean on your own understanding. The reality is, I think for many of us, one of the reasons we're stuck when it comes to closing that gap is we're walking by sight, not by faith. We're trusting our own observation, cynicism, and intuition rather than what God's word says about having victory over some particular sin. I'll give you a couple ways this might happen in your life. Number one, whatever that pet sin is that you struggle with, so uh, often, maybe you look at that sin out in culture or out in the world, and you think to yourself, this sin is so pervasive, it's all over the place, it's just this monster eating so many millions or billions of people, and they're enslaved to it. Who am I kidding? I don't have a chance at having victory over it either. If you do that, you're walking by sight, not by faith, because God's revealed that he's given us the Holy Spirit, and that's powerful enough to experience victory over our spiritual impulses. Another way this might look in your life is maybe you look at your own personal history, right? If you've been following Christ for some time, you go, how have I been doing historically with that temper, with that materialism, whatever it may be? And you look in the rearview mirror and you say, well, I really haven't made much or any progress in this area before over the course of the months or years or perhaps even decades, let's face the facts, I'm never really gonna make much of a dent when it comes to closing that gap. Probably my favorite extra biblical parable is the parable of the elephant and the chain. To me, this is such an insightful and hopeful and brilliant parable. If you haven't heard it, the parable goes something like, this. When a baby elephant is born, I am told that oftentimes what they do pretty early on is they get one chain and they will secure it to one of the elephant's legs. And then that will get attached to a stake that goes two to three feet into the ground. And naturally, when that baby elephant is still new in this world and young, it's not very strong. So it tries to pull away a little bit, but it can't really make any progress. And so what happens over the course of time is as this elephant matures and becomes the largest land mammal and the most powerful land mammal, it still can be restrained by one chain on its leg. Why? Because it has been conditioned by its past and it now believes I'm always going to be dealing with this captivity and slavery, even though 
it has the power now to easily break free. Folks, that's a lot of us. We are looking at the pervasiveness of a sin in the world or how difficult our struggle may have been in our past, and we're coming to the conclusion there's no hope, there's no prayer. Well, God's word tells us there is hope because we have the Holy Spirit leading us, empowering us, giving us energy. But we need to walk by faith, not by sight. Second reason we have a difficult time closing the gap is we frankly have grown tired of swallowing our pride. Do you ever just get embarrassed having to confess something to God again? You're like, I can't believe I gotta confess this sin again, or I gotta apologize to my spouse again, or apologize to my kids again. Sometimes it just gets embarrassing. There's this like fatigue element to it, and sometimes you just wanna be like, eh, let's just forget the whole mission with trying to close the gap here. Folks, we need to be people that are committed to continually confessing our sins before God if we actually want to close that gap. Proverbs 24, verse 16 uh, tells us that the righteous person, the righteous man, the righteous woman, they're not someone that never stumbles or never falls, right? The righteous person, according to Proverbs 24, 16, is a person that they fall seven times, seven, the number of completion, that's a lot of falling, but what do they do? According to that passage, they fall seven times, but they rise again. They confess that sin. They ask the Lord to help them, and they take it one day at a time. 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, that is, we agree with our mouths that we have sinned and fallen short of God's standard as outlined in Holy Scripture, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, not just to forgive us our sins, but also to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You wanna close the gap? You wanna be cleansed from all unrighteousness? Do you wanna actually grow to be more like Christ? A precondition for that is a commitment to continually confessing our sins before God and not growing tired of confession. The third reason many of us fail to make much progress when it comes to closing the gap is we're not working both hard and smart. We need to work hard and smart. If we want to close the gap, if we want to have victory over our sinful impulses, then we need to roll up our sleeves and sweat a little and bleed a little and have some skin in the game. One of my favorite passages of scripture comes from Philippians 2. 12 through 13, and there it says, work out your own salvation. In other words, work really hard to close the gap. Put effort in, blood, sweat, and tears. Take this seriously. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because at the end of the day, God is at work in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. That Holy Spirit that indwells every genuine believer is working in our wills to make us want to do things we used to not want to do. He's working in our wills to make us disgusted with some things we used to love. He's working in changing what our wills are. And not only that, he's giving us the power to work it out and to bring it to fruition. But folks, while God is at work in us and he has a role, which is to work for our willing and our empowerment, we have a role, which is to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We need to work hard. 
But one of the things I love about the Bible is we also are invited to work smart. We don't have time to get much into this, but I'm just gonna give you sort of a smattering here to help illustrate this. The Bible is unbelievably practical with how we are to pursue holiness. We are to do it by learning from others, by finding ways to make it easier and not making it any harder on ourselves than we need to. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, we are told there to flee sexual immorality. Focus on that word, flee. Get away from it. Create distance. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount tells us that if our right eye causes us to sin or our eye causes us to sin, we are to pluck it out from us and throw it away. You seeing that distance? Distance is coming into that. Jesus is saying, get it away from you. Similar idea to fleeing, creating some distance there. In Proverbs chapter 5, the warning to be on guard against someone that is uh, an adulterer or an adulteress. We're told there to not go near their door. Keep some distance. Folks, be practical in your pursuit of closing that gap. Practice some spiritual social distancing, okay? Keep some space between you and some of those temptations. If you have a problem with gambling, probably shouldn't go to the casino, if you have a problem with overspending when you don't have the money, you probably shouldn't go to Target when you're bored. <laughs> if you have a problem with your thought life, you need to be very honest with yourself about those streaming services that you have a subscription for. Work hard, but work smart. Fourth and finally, another reason we tend to have such difficulty in closing the gap is this. We have an unrealistic timetable for closing the gap. Oftentimes, we have an unrealistic timetable for closing the gap. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, we see a different angle, a different way to look at closing the gap. And it's described in the following terms. The fruit of the Spirit, in other words, this is what the Spirit's working out in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you're born again, the Spirit's in you working towards producing that fruit. We have to cooperate, but the Holy Spirit is working in our lives trying to produce that fruit. And it's not hard to see that if I'm growing in self-control, I'm going to close that gap in a lot of areas. If I'm growing in patience, I'm going to be able to close that gap in a lot of areas. But it's no mistake the metaphor that is picked up in Galatians chapter 5. How is closing the gap described? It's described as producing what? What does it say in that verse? Fruit. Closing the gap in Scripture is oftentimes described as producing fruit, and producing fruit can take a very, very long time. I was talking to Tim Kong just recently, and he was telling me that his family planted an apple tree at their house something like five or six years ago, and it still hasn't produced any apples. Now, it's growing. It's strong, progress is being made, but it hasn't gotten to maturity yet, and therefore it's not yet producing apples. And I understand that it can take something like seven to 10 years for an apple seed to grow into a tree that can actually produce fruit. Folks, it's no accident that that's the way God describes this process 
of us closing the gap. Sometimes we're in more of a hurry than even God appears to be. Don't misunderstand me. We should have an appropriate sense of urgency, but we also need to have a realistic timetable for closing the gap. Oftentimes, producing fruit is a very long process, but that's exactly how the gap-closing procedure is described in Scripture. So I want to ask you today as we close, are you one of those men or women who have been following the Lord Jesus Christ for years or decades? Have you been struggling with some besetting sin for years or decades and you're feeling tired and discouraged and you just want to give up? Well, friends, if that's you, allow yourself to be refreshed by the promise in God's word found in Galatians 6, verse 9. Speaking about this fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 6, verse 9 says this, when it comes to working hard to closing the gap, let's not grow weary of doing good. Here's a promise. You can take this to the bank. Here's the reason why you shouldn't grow weary. For in due season, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Our sinful impulses need not master us anymore if we are in Christ. According to Scripture, we have been liberated by their dominating dictatorial power. That has been put off, and Christ has liberated us from the power they once had over us. Friends, God is at work in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. He wants us to close the gap. That's his will for us. He is working that out in our lives. In light of that, let's work out our own salvation. Let's work hard and smart at closing that gap because God is at work in you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for these eye-opening passages of Scripture. I remember when I first was confronted with this teaching in the Bible, I was blown away, a little skeptical, but very energized and excited. Lord, your word tells us that the person that has been set free by the Son has been set free indeed. Lord, we have undergone a circumcision of the heart if we are in you, and your Holy Spirit lives in us if we are on our way to heaven and truly in a right relationship with you. And in light of that, Father, we have every reason to want to roll up our sleeves and work. But God, I pray that you would help us to walk by faith, not by sight. God, I ask that you would help us to stay humble and willing to confess 10,000 times if need be. God, I ask that you would help us to work hard and smart, being practical, soliciting advice from other men and women that have had victory in the area in which we're struggling, that we would be coachable enough to receive that and try some of those tactics out. No, not everyone's gonna work for us, but a bunch of them will, Lord. And finally, God, we just ask that you would help us to not grow weary in doing good, to have a reasonable timetable. Lord, you are patient with us we thank you for that, God. We ask that you would help us grow in closing the gap today, throughout this week, throughout the rest of this year. And we pray this in the name of Christ, the one who liberates. Amen.